Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 43 for May 8, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. In the face of numerous brush fires across the Middle East, the United States all too often seems to be trapped in cycles of reacting to the most urgent problems while losing sight of the need to prioritize its most important, fundamental interests. Former presidential advisor Ambassador Dennis Ross understands the challenges facing policymakers in the administration and offers his advice for how best to align our responses to near-term crises with our long-term strategic goals. The U.S. needs basically to get off the sidelines. We're in the sidelines right now. The messages that have been sent by the administration about wanting to pull out of Syria has basically emboldened the Iranians to do more. And it hasn't given the Russians any incentive to do anything to limit what the Iranians are doing. In a conversation recorded prior to President Trump's formal announcement on the Iran nuclear deal, Ambassador Ross shares his insights into the full range of Middle East challenges, from the Israeli-Palestinian peace process to Iran to the growing risk of a major regional war. After this... This is Gaith Al-Omari, Senior Fellow at the Erwin Levy Family Program on the U.S.-Israel Strategic Relationship at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and prompting the policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. We're speaking today with Ambassador Dennis Ross, a former special assistant to President Barack Obama, who has served as a foreign policy advisor to five presidents of both parties. Ambassador Ross is counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute. Ambassador, welcome to Near East PolicyCast. Very good to be with you. Speaking recently at the Institute, Israeli Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman said of the peace process, quote, there's no peace, there's no process. He then suggested that Israel would do better to seek a comprehensive multilateral settlement with its Arab neighbors that included the Palestinian issue rather than continuing to seek a bilateral deal with the Palestinians. From an American perspective, How does the idea of a switch to a multilateral track rather than looking for a bilateral solution with the Palestinians strike you? Well, there's an argument for it. Whether it can work is a different issue, but there is an argument for it. The argument for it is that the Palestinians at this point are too weak, too divided, with a leadership that is incapable of of making decisions, uh, certainly making any concessions, that given that, if you had an Arab cover for the Palestinians, they could then make decisions that otherwise at this point are simply impossible for them to engage in. Mm -hmm. So there is an argument to to consider that. At the same time, to make it credible, the Arab leaders would have to know that Israel is prepared to take steps that allow them to deliver for the Palestinians what the Palestinians cannot deliver for themselves. So it, it would not avoid the need for Israel to take some very hard decisions and to make some pretty profound concessions. But it could be a vehicle for getting to that point. And and would Israel uh, need to show some of its cards in terms of actions in the West Bank, for example, before that process could really get underway? Or as part of that process, as opposed to waiting until the ink is dry on a final agreement and bam, everything happens? I think that, in fact, this is the sort of thing that could be choreographed, that what you might end up doing is creating a, a series of parallel moves but those would all be understood in advance, and they would be part of a sequence. And the sequence might start with what the Israelis would do, let's say, they would stop building outside of the settlement blocks. Uh, The Arabs might send, for the first time, a delegation to Israel that would include Arabs from states that have no relations with Israel. Mm -hmm. 
And, and the Palestinians might be asked at the same time, uh, for example, to show that they have a Palestinian Authority map that actually shows Israel on it. Right. So, there, in other words, you could start with a series of steps that are worked out in advance but are part of a sequence leading to what could be a larger agreement. Going back uh, to the 90s, one of the predicates for the peace agreement with Jordan was essentially the Jordanian uh, monarchy relinquishing any claim on either the land or representation of the people of uh, the Palestinian population of the West Bank. So is is this in any sense a step backwards into an older paradigm of uh, Israeli-Arab relations on the Palestinian question? Look, it's a really interesting question because the history of this conflict has gone through a variety of different uh, manifestations and, and I would say incarnations. If you go back to pre-1936, there was an Arab interest. There was the, the Palestinians who lived you know, in what was then Palestine, mm-hmm. mandatory Palestine, did not have a clear identity. Starting in 1936, there was something called the Arab Revolt for three years. This was actually an effort on the part of the Arabs of Palestine, in effect, to resist what was then taking place. Between what the British did and what the Yeshiv, the Jewish community in Palestine did, basically you saw uh, an end to the organization uh, that Arabs in Palestine were able to, in a sense, create. Mm -hmm. And the net effect of that was after 1939, until I would say after the 1967 war, the Arabs of Palestine basically deferred to the Arabs, Mm -hmm. that it's up to you. So in 1948, you know, the Arab states invaded Israel after it declared itself. From from the 48 war until 67, there was a perception that the Arabs were going to avenge the loss. In fact, Mm -hmm. when Gamal al Nasser, the president of Egypt, emerged, this was his claim to leadership of the Arab world, uh, and others competed with him for that, even if they didn't always support him. After 67 and after the defeat of 67, the Palestinians then basically said, all right, can't count on the Arabs any longer. And, and they developed through the PLO and other groups within the PLO an approach that was based on terror and resistance, but wasn't based on a, any real political platform. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, what we're doing is maybe going back to the future. Okay. It's a, it may well be that what you see here is an effort to bring the Arabs back into this in a way that they once had, but then basically gave up. Uh, and there's a value for it, not only because it creates a cover for the Palestinians, there's a value for it because the Israelis need a cover too. Yeah. I say that because the Israeli public doesn't believe that any concession made to the Palestinians will produce anything from the Palestinians. Yeah. So if they're going to make a concession to the Palestinians, they have to know that they're getting something from the Arabs. Mm-hmm. So here is a Palestinian leadership that needs Arab cover if it's even going to contemplate any moves. And also any Israeli government at this point is going to need Arab cover to make concessions to the Palestinians. So there's a logic to it. Now, whether one can act on it, that remains to be seen. Changing uh, geographic track, but uh, keeping with the topic of, um, of, of the logic of a position, um, of an approach to negotiation, you have written on the Iran nuclear deal uh, that's currently on the president's desk to determine uh, by mid-May whether to certify or not yet again. You wrote in the Washington Post that if Trump withdraws, he withdraws alone. Isn't the logic, though, of threatening or even carrying out withdrawal on the U.S. side right now that it introduces new leverage both on Iran and our European partners um, and that we can hold out the offer to re-enter the deal 
and to again lift sanctions when new, better uh, terms of the agreement are in place. First off, does that make sense to you as a negotiating uh, strategy just on the deal narrowly for, for us as one party? The first part of it could make sense provided. So let me do both uh, what could make sense and the provided. There is no doubt that the Europeans desperately want us to stay in the deal. Now, that gives us leverage on them to try to address the concerns that the administration has laid out in the following areas. One are the sunset provisions, meaning those provisions that currently limit the kind of the amount of centrifuges that Iran can have, the amount of enriched material it can produce, whether it can have uh, reprocessing capabilities and the like. There are limitations on that, but they lapse in the, in the year 2030. Mm-hmm. So to keep us in the deal, um, the Europeans might look for ways to try to address that. Uh, a second area of concern was the ballistic missile testing. A third area of concern uh, has to do with Iran's regional behavior. And a fourth area of concern has to do with inspections. Yeah. Now, these collectively, uh, again, maybe the Europeans can respond on some of these, and they, we know that they've been in discussions, negotiations with the administration, and have been prepared to move at least partway on some of them, mm-hmm. uh, on raising the cost to the Iranians in the region by imposing sanctions there, similarly sanctions on ballistic missile testing. On inspections, they're prepared to explicitly say that th- those have to also include military facilities. On the sunset provisions, they're prepared to make a general statement about Iran living up to the deal and also looking to maybe have a supplemental agreement after 2030 when these uh, when these limitations are uh, are no longer uh, going to be implemented. Right. Well, and, and so right now, the prospect of American withdrawal or decertification gives us leverage with our European partners to try to seek a better deal. After we withdraw, if we do, does the leverage situation change at all? When I said that if we withdraw, we withdraw alone, I was getting at the fact that our real leverage exists before we act. The minute we pull out, the leverage goes down. Now, it may be we have different ways that we could pull out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the president, for example, could announce he's no longer going to waive the sanctions. What he has to do uh, every 120 days is waive the sanctions that had been adopted legislatively. Yeah. He doesn't then have to go ahead and implement the sanctions. There's a difference between waiving them and being required to then implement them. He could basically say, I'm, I'm no longer going to waive the sanctions. I'm being true to what I said. This is a bad deal. But because we're in discussions now with the Europeans, I'm prepared to continue those discussions, and I'm prepared not to implement the sanctions uh, maybe for the next four months to see if we can reach understandings with the Europeans. So this is a trigger that doesn't have to be pulled all at once. That's right. Okay. So that's where there could be, in other words, there's leverage both before he pulls out, where in my mind that's the greatest leverage. There could be leverage afterwards if he's pulling out but not implementing the pullout. Now, if the Europeans are are determined to preserve the deal um, and, and are, as they seem, very invested in trying to achieve that, before we actually pull the trigger, um, it sounds like you're saying that their primary focus is keeping us in the deal. Once we leave, does their primary focus become trying to get us back in or keeping Iran on board and preventing it from getting even worse on that side? 
my guess is that they will be going to great lengths to persuade the Iranians not to leave, and my guess is that the Iranians will be going to great lengths to convince them that they're going to unless, in a sense, they're given a set of incentives not to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for their own reasons, the Iranians at this point would like to portray themselves as the victim and and then to play upon the breach that's been created between us and the Europeans. Yeah. Uh, so the I think you're going to see them in the near term focus very heavily uh, on persuading the Europeans about the great dangers of them leaving the deal and them suddenly going back to enriching and them producing large numbers of centrifuges very quickly. That, I think, is all designed to play upon European fears. The fears are real. A measure of how real they are is that's why the Europeans want us to stay in the deal, because they think that the deal really does restrict the Iranians until 2030. And and by the way, they're right. It does. Mm -hmm. The question is, is that good enough? Right. What's your sense of the European assessment of the real security threat of a potential Iranian nuclear program with uh, ballistic missile capability? Are American policymakers for three administrations, at least now, have warned that, um, yes, a long enough ICBM can launch from Iran, can hit the United States, and that would be very bad for us. But on the way to build that ICBM, you've also got to develop shorter range ICBMs, and all of Europe is in the the, uh, the effective range of that. Do the Western European capitals really see themselves as potentially under nuclear threat from an ICBM armed nuclear capable Iran? Not really. Mm. I think that their big their big desire to keep us in the deal is a fear that if we withdraw from the deal and the Iranians then resume their nuclear program, the only answer is then going to be a military answer. Okay. And they see what then amounts to a war with Iran, and they, they see that in broad, catastrophic terms. Yeah. Taking a step back from uh, details of uh, important things like the Middle East peace process and the relationship with Iran and our European allies uh, over it, strategy is uh, sometimes defined as a matter of prioritizing among the goods one seeks to achieve and the ills one seeks to avoid. Looking at the Middle East right now, what would you say are America's first order of priorities? What are the most important things for us uh, as we plan policy, not just for next month, but for the coming decade? I would say there's a, a couple of broad strategic priorities. One is negative and one is positive. The negative one is to find a way to contain what the Iranians are doing in the region, because The expansion of the Iranian presence, the expansion and growth of their leverage, their use of Shia militias uh, as a kind of cheap, in their eyes, tool to extend their influence and their leverage, poses a threat throughout the region. Uh, At a minimum in the near term, it poses a threat of a much wider uh, Israeli-Iranian-Shia militia war, Mm -hmm. one that won't be confined only to Lebanon, Syria, and Israel. Uh, Israel won't allow itself to be put in a position where basically uh, the Iranians think they can threaten Israel through Syria and Jordan, uh, Syria and Lebanon, yeah. but that Israel really can't reach it. Israel won't allow itself to be in that kind of an asymmetric situation, meaning if, if a war comes and Israel is being hit with 2,000 rockets a day, it's not going to allow the Iranians to be somehow immune to the cost of this war. So that's a, that is a strategic imperative because you can see that coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's likely, by the way, to involve oil facilities, because the Israelis may well decide that they're going to impose a serious price on Iran, and Iran won't be able to add to what it's doing against Israel through Hezbollah, because it's, Hezbollah has 150,000 rockets. Iran is far away. 
uh, here's the flip side of being far away. But what it might do is go ahead and, and hit Saudi oil facilities. Hmm. Uh, and then you suddenly you're in a very different situation than we are right now. And potential so, cycles of escalation there. That, so the uh, it's, it's long been an, a, a, a major concern of American policymakers that uh, the threat of Iranian hegemony in the region uh, and, and Iran essentially becoming the regional great power of the Middle East is uh, an important threat. But you're saying that uh, the, the real potential for immediate conflict uh, makes it also an urgent matter, not just a long-term problem. Yes, I think that that's a good way to describe it. This is not just something that's over the horizon. This is something that is much more immediate. Uh, and unless the U.S. adopts a position of basically conveying to the Russians right now, if you don't contain the spread of Iran within Syria, we're not saying you have to roll them back, but the, if they continue to spread, the Israelis will react. The, and we're on a collision course because the Iranians right now in Syria are trying to create there what they have in Lebanon with Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. And Israel is just as determined to say, okay, one Hezbollah is enough. Right. We're not going to allow the recreation in Syria of what exists presently within Lebanon. That's a northern front. It creates a much more serious strategic problem for us. And we can't live with it. Mm -hmm. So we won't. So here you, you basically are on a collision course. Uh, and, and what I'm suggesting, it has the potential to escalate vertically in terms of the scope of the war even uh, in the northern front with Israel, but also horizontally because it can involve Iran and then it may involve others as well. And, and not through uh, a, a dynamic similar to 1914 where uh, the, the, the collision of one or two powers automatically brings in their allies, but more of an escalatory threat where... Uh, we've got Iran and Israel going after each other in uh, a cycle of escalation, first through proxies, then directly, but then possibly Iran escalating themselves to go after right. Saudi Arabia. Um, right. And that's a very different thing than I, I feel like a lot of people are, are talking about when they look at the threats of a wider regional war emanating from Syria. It's not so much a matter of uh, we've got these locked and loaded right. set of alliances. It's that there's kind of a mess Right. It is not a World War I scenario where you had a rigid alliance structure, which once you cross a certain certain threshold, it, was just it automatically triggered these mobilizations and war. Yeah. Uh, that's not what's going on here. But there is a fundamental contradiction between Iran determined to build up a, the kind of presence within Syria that Israel will view uh, as a deep, significant strategic threat. Yeah. And that then has the potential for a wide expansion. So that's the negative side of, the, of what we should be thinking about strategically. And the U.S. needs basically to get off the sidelines. We're mm -hmm. in the sidelines right now. The messages that have been sent by the administration about wanting to pull out of Syria has basically emboldened the Iranians to do yeah. more. And it hasn't given the Russians any incentive to do anything to limit what the Iranians are doing. We need to give the Russians an incentive to limit it. And one way to do that is basically to make it clear if they don't contain the Iranians, we will. And we're not leaving it just to the Israelis. And the reason we would do that is because we don't want the wider war. We can see where the wider war leads, and we see that sucks us right. in under circumstances that are dramatically worse. How do we communicate that in a way that Moscow, uh, one, understands, two, believes? Well, I think the key is it has to be the right communicator. It has to be to Putin. It needs to be done privately. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it needs to be punctuated by action, not just words. For example, if we say, look, if you don't contain them, we will. Mm -hmm. You know, you give them a little time and space and you see what they do. 
if we see nothing changes and we see a move by Shia militias to, to move, let's say, towards the Jordan border, which is highly likely, yeah. we use, at that point, air power and blunt it. Okay. And then when we say privately to the Russians, you didn't take us seriously, you didn't understand the message, we just gave you the message again. So you're, you're looking for uh, kinetic actions uh, to back up diplomacy in this case uh, to, I don't know if deterrence is the right word in this case, but it to persuade to, Russia. It is. It's not compellence. It's deterrence. Okay. We're not, it's basically to persuade the Russians that if I were, let's put it this way, if I were uh, managing the message to Putin, I would basically have someone like Mike Pompeo or even perhaps John Bolton go secretly to see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to say, look, the president's made it clear he wants to get out of Syria. Yeah. You should be making it easier, not harder. Right now, we cannot get out, and we might get sucked back in because we can see a war coming, a much wider war, uh, especially if it involves uh, the region as a whole. We'll have no choice. Yeah. So if you want us out, you'll need to act against the spread of the Iranians. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, we're letting you know now, privately, directly, respectfully, not putting anybody in the spot. We're just letting you know now. If you don't do it, we will. For Putin, one of the most important things is not just to be seen as the winner in Syria, but that he's now the arbiter of events in Syria, and that has implications for the broader Middle East. It's part of what Putin does to recreate the imagery of Russian power on the world stage. And so if it looks like, in a sense, it's American power that's going to be shaping events. That's the last thing he wants to see. Right. But if he can have a place at the table that, that at least presents uh, an image of being respected as a power, and, and is that something that we can uh, reasonably We can do conduct? that. Look, I think what he wants is, yes, he wants respect, but he also wants to be seen as winning. Okay. And he doesn't want U.S. power to look like it's shaping events. Right now, it looks like He's the one shaping events, and we look to be the ones withdrawing. Right. And now that's part of the part of the private message ought to be. We actually are prepared to get out. Yeah. So you can either make it easier or you can make it harder. Mm-hmm. Your choice. But we've got to be prepared to act on that then publicly yeah, not, after making that private conversation. I'm a big believer that diplomacy that is not backed by at least the threat of coercion that you are prepared to act on rarely works. Mm-hmm. The positive strategic development is what's happening in Saudi Arabia, because there's never been a successful model of development in the Arab world, and that's one of the reasons there's been an appeal of extremist forces who claim they will restore the Middle East to the greatness it once had. In the 10th century, Islam was the cutting edge of all culture, science, Mm -hmm. arithmetic, language, uh, literature, uh, and they will also produce a just society. Mm -hmm. They'll produce progress in a just society. Now, they've been pretenders because they can't. Their ideologies, whether it was the radical national secularists like uh, Nasser or Saddam Hussein, or it's the Islamists of today, whether it's a Muslim Brotherhood or it's Al-Qaeda or it's it's ISIS, Mm -hmm. they all have an ideology that rules out success. So if you suddenly have a successful model of development in one of the larger countries in the region, that sends a different kind of message, that progress is possible, you know, that... You have a reason to be hopeful, and that tends to freeze out the extremists. Hmm. So we have a huge stake uh, in the success of the Saudis. That, together with the possibility that they see Israel as a kind of natural partner, at least on, at least privately, below the radar screen, yeah. that itself could change if, in fact, something could be done on the Palestinian issue. Then you're looking at what is strategically a transformation of the region. 
So there are possibilities here, but we also have to be mindful of what it takes to produce them. Well, and, and for the United States, what can we do? What should we be trying to do to uh, help the, uh, the, the, the Saudi experiment uh, turn out well and produce positive results, not just for Saudi Arabia, but also hopefully a model for their neighbors? Look, I think there's several things we need to be doing. There's a lot of technical advice that can be offered. They still are talking about doing an IPO uh, for Aramco, taking about 5% of it and, and taking it public. We can be helping on that front. Uh, we can be helping in terms of something else they see. They are, they, they are sending about 80,000 students a year to the United States. One of their ideas, which is a good one, is to allow them to become management interns in places mm. here for a year term so, or a year or two. So they aren't just being educated, but they begin to develop practical experiences as, as well. Uh, I think we can be working with them on their educational reforms, which, again, they have an interest in creating a knowledge-based society. All right, that's, that's something that is our, in our interest as well. Yeah. Uh, clearly, they want investments from the outside. Uh, here again, it would be good to have a kind of ongoing economic dialogue with them to focus on what might be most productive in terms of the steps that they're taking. I think in the security area, we should be working with them also. I would like to see a high-level dialogue, let's say, with the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State uh, with the Crown Prince uh, every three months hmm. to go over what's happening. I mean, in the neighborhood, what we can be doing together. Before they take a decision or we take a decision, we vet it with each other to think about what are the consequences of acting. Here, you could you could you could end up doing more to make uh, their foreign policy moves and ours more effective. And one other thing I would do is there's no reason that we couldn't be creating a set of either trilateral or parallel contingency discussions where we work with the Saudis, the Emiratis, and others as well as the Israelis and look at our. What are the options we can develop for countering Iran's use of the Shia militias? This is a threat that is seen collectively, and the Iranians sort of see it as a low-cost way to spread their power and influence. Right. Well, there ought to be we ought to be developing options with the local parties through contingency planning to counter that and raise the cost and raise the cost. If Iran really is one of the first-order uh, strategic issues or challenges facing the United States in the Middle East. Does the current focus on the narrow aspects of uh, the nuclear deal and its potential faults, does that risk, as you wrote, uh, creating the illusion of toughness on Iran without the effects that might have to be achieved through more direct action uh, in Syria or on behalf of uh, our Arab partners in the region to push back? Look, I, I would make two points. The JCPOA is a means. It's not an end. It should be a part of a strategy. It's not a substitute for having a strategy. What we're dealing with right now is an Iran that is very active in terms of extending its reach throughout the region, and that's creating greater dangers that could produce a wider war. Mm -hmm. So we have an interest in addressing that. If we address only the JCPOA, which will make it look like we're being tough on Iran, it has the effect of not dealing with the real threats. Uh, and it shouldn't, therefore, create a satisfaction, gee, we're being tough because look what we did walking away from the JCPOA, while at the same time Iran is spreading itself in the region and our policy isn't addressing that. So I think the key is how do you integrate this? How do you make the JCPOA part of a strategy and not a substitute for a strategy? 
from Tehran's point of view, um, do you think that the uh, would they trade the falling apart of the JCPOA and possibly reimposition of significant sanctions for continued success on the ground with their militia push against the regional order and their neighboring Arab uh, states? It's a good question. My guess is right now, first thing that they'll try to do is convince the Europeans the great danger of a march towards war on the nuclear issue if, if they don't if, if they pull out of the deal. Mm-hmm. They'll do that, I think, to not only try to incentivize the, the Europeans to pay them off for staying in the deal, uh, but also if they want to present themselves as a victim, they have to keep the focus only on the nuclear issue. Away from Right. Yeah. Now, if the Iranians, if the, if the Europeans are, in fact, incentivizing them to stay in the deal, the Europeans are very unlikely to impose costs on them in the region. So it still gives the Iranians a kind of free hand in the region. What you really have is, the reason the question is good is because in theory, if the, if the Iranians are really hurt by a pullout, mm-hmm. then it plays on the contradictions within Iran. Mm. The problem, and we're seeing the contradictions, there, there is greater distress, there's greater alienation and the like. Mm-hmm. And there are more demonstrations. Demonstrations have not stopped. So there are contradictions in Iran. But the right way to do this is, is to act in a way where the Iranians cannot present themselves as a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I had my druthers, what I would design is a policy that basically takes what we can get from the Europeans on the JCPOA. That includes, by the way, a, re- a readiness on their part to raise the price to the Iranians in the region, to, to adopt sanctions against what the Iranians are doing in the region. That has the benefit of not allowing the Iranians to play the victim, and it actually has the, the, the gain of raising the cost to them of what they're doing in the region. When you do that, you play on the contradictions in Iran. Many of the demonstrators in Iran have said, spend money on us, yeah. not on Syria. So in, in, in closing, instead of making the terms of debate about whether the United States will or will not pull out of the JCPOA, we should be focusing on making the terms of, of debate. Look at the aggression that Iran is pushing in the region. Let's do something about that. Absolutely. Like, that that should be the focus, particularly if we have used... I, I have no... I have no problem with the Trump administration using the European desire to keep us in the deal as a lever to get them to make a series of moves, including as it relates to the JCPOA. Mm-hmm. But I don't want that to be an end in itself. I want it to be tied to what is the bigger threat that we're facing from Iran. We have been speaking today with Ambassador Dennis Ross, counselor and William Davidson Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute. Ambassador, thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.